0: If you have a Bible, why don't you turn over to the book of Romans. Uh, That's going to be page 939 if you need to use one of our Pew Bibles. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of those Pew Bibles. Um, And um, if you actually don't even have a Bible of your own, keep the Pew Bible in front of you. Consider that our gift from us to you. The only thing we ask is you use it, you get into it. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, there's a lot of us that are probably pretty tired this morning. Uh, We just finished... 30 hours of training in biblical counseling yesterday afternoon. We were here Friday night till almost 10 o'clock, and then yesterday from 8.30 to 5 o'clock, and it was phenomenal. Uh, In the last three months, we had three weekends in the sanctuary. We had about 250 people every weekend, maybe probably more, And it was just great to hear training on practical ministry and how to bring the gospel to bear on our lives in ways that matter. Uh, And it was just exciting to not only have, I think we had about 50 of our people part of it, but have so many churches, both established churches and and quite a few church plants coming here, bringing their leadership to be trained in this. And it's just exciting. You know, Psalm 115 says, all glory, or not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. But God often uses means to door, towards those ends, and one of the means of that were just watching our people, not only those attending the conference, but to those of you who were serving tirelessly these last three weekends, and they're the kind of people that would be embarrassed if I made them all stand up. So, the sinful part of me wants to do that and have them stand up, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I do want to acknowledge that the effort that you all put into it has been a blessing, not only to my soul as a pastor and the elders, but to many of these churches who I personally get to list, talk to their leadership about how they are growing and it's changing the fabric of their church. So, thank you very much to have served so much and then show up here first thing Sunday morning for service is a testimony to the work. Of God in your lives, and and again, that bookstore that we're talking about, friends, it's not an exaggeration. Um, uh, You know, I'm not prone to exaggeration at all. So this bookstore is either the best, or at least on par with the best of any Christian bookstore in South Orange County, guaranteed. I guarantee, because I've seen some of our Christian bookstores. And okay, I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to say take advantage of this. We sent out emails. We want to let you know about it. For goodness sakes, they have kids' books on the Reformation. I mean, how many bookstores actually even have books on the Reformation, but also think about how do we teach our children the value of the Reformation? So all that to say is that this is they're only going to be here today, so after the service, go through there. Uh, Friday night, I went through one aisle, and I grabbed like five books it was like, yeah, anger, I got a problem with that. I'm going to get that book and faith. I got to grow in faith. And, and I stopped going through the aisles because it was like $80 worth of books right there. So uh, get yourself some books. Get equipped. Buy books as gifts and spread them out there. Um, so I just want to encourage you to do that because we're only going to have them here this weekend. Um, uh, this has nothing to do with the sermon, so let me somehow segue into my sermon. Uh, and, and, and I'm also thinking that this Tuesday, Uh, is probably gonna be another Halloween like every Halloween in the United States, right? Uh, You know the trajectory. Uh, If you have young kids especially, your kids are gonna dress up in their costumes. They're gonna go trick-or-treating throughout the neighborhood. They'll get gobs and gobs of candy. Uh, Parents the next morning in the name of safety will inspect that candy. And, And every child in the neighborhood from 12 and under is gonna be on a massive sugar rush from now until Thanksgiving. That's probably how it's gonna go. But there is something unique about this particular Tuesday, and most of you hopefully know what that is. This particular Tuesday, like every Halloween, we actually recognize something very significant on the world stage of history, it's called the Protestant Reformation. This Tuesday, it's a bit more unusual because this is the 500th year, the half millennium of the Protestant Reformation. 500 years ago, this Tuesday, the world, Western civilization, was rocked to its core, and that is not an exaggeration whatsoever. A simple man, Martin Luther, a simple monk, though not the first, was certainly the catalyst by which God used to recover the gospel message and light the fuse of the powder keg that would become the Protestant Reformation. A simple act of nailing onto a church door, not any spectacular church. It was just a church at Wittenberg, and he did what, what anybody was going to do if they're going to kind of create academic debate. He nailed his arguments onto that, onto that door and started a reformation the like of which the world was changed by. Now, we celebrate the Reformation not because we're particularly into monks or dig European history. I'm not really excited about either of those two. We celebrate the Reformation because in the Reformation, what we see in the act of history is an is a unrelenting God that will not allow anything to stop or hinder or yield His amazing gospel message of salvation in Christ by faith through grace that he would change the course of history to make sure that the gospel message was known. If you know anything about history, it, it occurred to me it is not a historical coincidence that the modern missionary movement exploded on the scene soon after the recovery of the gospel from the Reformation. It's no coincidence that 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 very same gospel they recovered went to the utter ends of the planet after the Protestant Reformation. And so this morning what I want to do in the short 30, 40 minutes that I have, in in, in an attempt to whet your appetite to know this this unrelenting God and this unyielding gospel message, I want to ask and answer three brief questions with you. They are this, number one, uh, why is the Reformation uh, important? Why, why is the Reformation important? How did the Reformation recover the gospel? And then third and finally, what does the Reformation mean for us today? So why is the Reformation important? How did the Reformation recover the gospel? And why is the Reformation important to us today? So now, when we, when we talk about the Reformation, uh, maybe some of you didn't even know that today was what's traditionally called Reformation Sunday. And that's kind of typical. Uh, Certainly, in most of the world media, you're not going to hear too many stories about it. A lot of Protestants, many evangelicals are even unaware of our own history. And in the flow of history, we wonder, there are so many massive events, how can any one or two uh, register as such an important thing? But the Protestant Reformation was one such thing. Now, we recognize that there are many historical events throughout the planet and globe that were very important but few are of the importance that impact everybody on the planet. And so while there are amazing things happening in the dynasties of China, the feudal systems of Japan, they're not going to make this list. But there were a few e- events that impacted not just the people involved in the events, not even the nations around it, not even the globe at that time, but few events impacted the people involved, the nations around the globe at that time, and forevermore, and the Protestant Reformation is one of them. Let me me name for you a few of them. By the way, um, yes, there's a historical importance of the Reformation. That's what I'm talking about. So, here's some events. The birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? We would all agree that's pretty significant first century. The fall of the Roman Empire in the fourth century. The great schism of the church when it was all one massive church across the entirety, almost the entirety of the then known world that split in two in the 10th, 11th century. Uh, The Crusades that followed after that in the 11th to 13th century, the Renaissance in the 14th century, the Reformation in the 16th century, the Enlightenment in the 18th century. These were all massive events that impacted the globe and impacts the globe to this day. Whether we know it or not, that is the case. Significant to realize that in every one of those events, even including the fall of Rome in the 4th century, Christianity had a significant and vital role in every one of those events. As a matter of fact, when you're thinking about the modern world, especially uh, Western civilization, you simply cannot understand our history without three large-scale movements, the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Enlightenment each of those had something to do with Christianity and the gospel in some sense. So in the Renaissance in the 14th century, it was the birth of humanism. Intellectual flourishing began and seismic shifts in knowledge in the culture and the arts. Two centuries after that was the Protestant Reformation. Massive political, cultural, theological, and ecclesiastical reforms. Seismic shifts in every one of those that rocked the world. Two centuries after that, we had the Enlightenment, the rise of rationalism, the concept of individual liberties, deism even sprung from that, and, and further, the Enlightenment furthered the divide and the trajectories of both the Renaissance and the Reformation for, for good or for bad, but that's what how the role of the Enlightenment, and in each of these things, right between these three large-scale movements, you have the Protestant Reformation firmly fixed within the flow of history if we don't understand, or if you try to get rid of or ignore just the implications of the Protestant Reformation, it it would be tantamount. It would be like taking Empire Strikes Back out of Star Wars, right? I I mean, it would be completely, you'd you'd still enjoy the story, but you'd say, well, who's the little green guy? What happened to Luke's hand? And who's his dad? You'd still enjoy the third movie, but you'd have no idea how this massive story arc connects In other words, the Reformation is the hinge pin of the society and civilization going from the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, into the modern world in so many ways. That's just the historical significance of the Protestant Reformation. But there's also a cultural political importance of the cultural reformation or the Protestant Reformations, and it would be this: that it wouldn't be an understatement, friends, to say that if it wasn't for the Protestant Reformation. Every one of us would still be Catholic, and every one of us would be subject to some king or the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire if it wasn't for the Protestant Reformation. The reformers successfully challenged the authority and rule over all of Europe, and in some cases down into the Middle East. And because of their successful challenge, they had opened the way for new avenues of education, of governance, of religious freedom and expression that we so easily enjoy and often take for granted today. Authority had shifted from an unquestionable institution and office that you could never question, and it shifted to ideas, but most importantly, to Scripture that was now available to all as a result of what the Reformers kind of claimed and understood that God's Word was the final and ultimate revelation of the character and nature and plan of God itself, literacy became of utmost importance to society up to that point. Literacy and the ability to simply read was reserved for the aristocracy, for the elite, for the rulers and the clergy, but not for everyone else. But because of the understanding of what we're going to talk about a little bit, sola scriptura, literacy became a prominent theme in society because if God is revealed in Scripture and if a Scripture is for all people, then all people need to learn to read to understand who God is. And so it's no coincidence that educator D. Bruce Lockerbie has said this, wherever the gospel is planted, the academy follows. Wherever the gospel is planted, the academy soon follows. But if the significance of the Reformation, friends, was was merely its historical or cultural or political value, it wouldn't be justified to be the topic of this morning's sermon. You see, the significance of the Reformation in all of its political, cultural, geographical, and, and historical value might be fitting for a university lecture, but not for a sermon. Here's why. As you understand Scripture, God is never satisfied, God is never content to have His name and His character and His plans merely described. He wants to be proclaimed. He's not happy to be merely described about what he does. He wants to be proclaimed and it's the theological significance, the theological importance of the Reformation that must be proclaimed because what the Reformation was was nothing less than the recovery of the great plan of God of salvation by grace alone and Christ alone through faith alone to recover and rescue it from the layers and layers and layers that had been put on top of the gospel by the Catholic Church And the gospel, the Reformation, was a recovery of this massive understanding that we can be made right with God out of the sheer riches of His mercy to us. So, wow, it it began with with Martin. Actually, it didn't begin with Martin Luther. Even centuries before, Jan Hus, John Wycliffe, men who saw, who would read the Scriptures because they're part of the clergy and recognize, oh my gosh, we're getting this wrong. We need to get the gospel out to the people, and they were burned at the stake for that by the church. So, Martin Luther wasn't the one who started it, but he was the man by which God would say, things have come. The time is now fulfilled. We need to get this going. And what started off as a a concern about the indulgences snowballed quickly. Uh, because of so many factors, the the rank corruption that was plaguing the Catholic Church, the massive compromise about the gospel message. So uh, deep and profound was the compromise that God began a new work called the Protestant Church, the churches that protest the gospel compromise of Rome. That's why we're called Protestants. Did you know that? That's why we have the name protestant because we protest the compromise of the church this is too big we protest against it this point my brothers and sisters cannot be stressed enough do not think of the protestant reformation as just a bigger version of a church split right we we can tend to think that if you don't understand what's happening here Oh, so you kind of think, oh, the Protestant Reformation. It was like uh, the reformers were telling the Bishop of Rome, ah, you know, we don't want to wear your, your robes. We'd rather preach in jeans and we don't like your hymns, so we're going to start our own thing down the street. That's not what took place. This was not an issue of, well, you like pews, we like theater seating, you want drums, we don't, so we're going to start our own thing. That's not what was going on. This was a divide over the very essential, of the the, the very engine of the gospel itself. We call it the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So ultimately, the answer to the question, why is the Reformation important? Yes, it includes the massive historical implications. Yes, it includes the cultural, political, uh, massive change that took place but the reason, the answer to the question, why is the Reformation important? It's because it was a recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ that had been lost completely. And that leads us to our second question. So, how did the Reformation recover the gospel? And the short answer to that is they just went to the Scriptures. Now, we all go, that's it? That's a bit of a underwhelming response. I mean, isn't that what we do all the time? You and I do. Yes, 500 years after the fact. you realize just going to the Scriptures on your own Reading the word, that was some major bad juju back then. You didn't bypass the magisterium of Rome. You didn't defy the, the, the papal office. you didn't ignore the hierarchy structure of Rome and just assume you could read Scripture and you could interpret it. No, that did not happen. But that's what they did. They went to the scriptures and studied them and read and realized the truth of the gospel that was always here, that had been lost under so many, whether well-meaning and probably some were, but it becomes so layered with, with traditions and hierarchy and structure and, and, and sacraments and, 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 and clergy. It was suffocating. Now, after the fact of the Reformation, as we look back, there's a, a battle cry of the Reformation that'll help you get a grip on it, and it's called the five solas. Who here uh, has ever heard of the five solas? Just raise your hand. Yeah, so a lot of you have heard them, right? So they're on the screen behind me now. They are, these kind of codified what the Reformation was about. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Sola fide, faith alone. sole dio gloria, to God's glory alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, we're, we're gonna leave that up there, Marilyn. Let's leave that slide up there. Because, because what I want you to see is, notice that that an increasing level of uh, a criticalness and importance, so people will say, "Oh yeah, the five solos: grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, God's glory alone, Scripture alone." Those were the the principles of the Reformation, right? So yes, we can. That's very intellectually stimulating. That's what the Reformation was about. Yes, it, yes, it was. Certainly, this codified. This was the battle cry of the reformers. This is kind of where they ended up. But what you need to understand is these are not just simply principles that define the Reformation. These are the essentials of Christianity. That's why the Reformers protested. They, they recognized these are the essentials of Christianity. There's nothing in here about the mediatorial role of Mary. There's nothing in here about the church being the ongoing incarnation of Christ. There's nothing in here about the Eucharist. There's nothing in here that our grace is given to us because we're good Catholics in the sacramental system. Where did all that come from? Because it's not in the Word of God. They realized these are the essentials of Christianity. Christianity. So it's not just the principles of the Reformation, it's not just the essentials of the Christian faith. The reason they're important is is this is central to salvation itself. This is essential to salvation itself, and that was the central issue of the Reformation. How is one to be saved? How can we be rescued from this sinking ship of humanity? How can we be sure that God is 100% for us forever? And there's was. It's His grace alone. It's in Christ alone. It's received through faith alone. And it's all for God's glory alone. And we know this from Scripture alone. And so these five solas were created. In other words, what was the problem? that the five solas were, were meant, that made the five solas necessary, right? That's one way to think about it. What was the problem that made the five solas necessary? Was getting to the question, how are we saved? How are we made right with God? How can we be sure God's for us forever 100%? Now, what I want to do, because um, literally we could have a sermon on each one of these solas, there are books written on each one of these solas. What I want to do is 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 look at the issue in the way that the reformers looked at that then resulted in them kind of coming to the five solos, yeah? I want to, let's look at the problem that the five solos were meant to address together so that you can see the passion of the reformers in why they not only codified these, but also gave their lives for it. Did you notice when we were singing um, A Mighty Fortress, which was written by Martin Luther, the, the, the reformer, there are some lines in there. I leaned over and told my wife when we sang that line, um, let co- goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body may they may kill. Do you think that was just something Luther thought, oh, that rhymes, I'm gonna put that in there. No, <laughs> he probably realized, my friends, my brothers and sisters who are taking this message and, and fighting for truth, they're dying. They're dying or their families being dragged off to prison and they're dying. They're going to have to let good of goods and kindred, and you know, they may kill the body. Who's he talking about? The Catholic church in the counter, when they were trying to squash this movement, they may kill the body, but they're not going to get my soul. I'm going to stand for this because God is a mighty fortress, I leaned over to my wife, and I don't know if any of you know this historically, let me know. When he talks about a mighty fortress, was he sitting in the castle, I think it was Frederick of Saxony, uh, was it Frederick of Saxony that protected him? Was he sitting in that castle saying, this is like how God is, a mighty fortress protecting my soul, and I'm going to have to encourage people, let the goods of this world, even your kindred goal, go. The body they might kill, but the gospel they can never take away. Friends, it meant something to them. So, let's dive into the Scriptures so we can see the thing that they were so passionate about. So, what I need to do is go to the book of Romans, and um, uh, we're just going to read through Scriptures. I have them on the screen, and we're going to do a Bible study together, friends. I wish I had an interactive thing where you could show me my writing, but you're just going to have to listen to me as I write. So, Romans 3, 9, what then… Are we Jews any better off? Paul is a Jew. He's an apostle, apostle. He's an apostle from the Jews but towards the Gentiles. Are we Jews better off? No, he says, not at all. For we have already charged that all, notice that all, both Jews and Greeks, that's how you refer to everybody that was part of the Roman Empire. They had other ethnicities, but that kind of was the broad brush of including everybody. You were either a Jew or you were like everyone else, Greek. All of us, both Jews and Greek, are what? Under sin. So everyone's under sin. As it's written, so he quotes from the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. Not one is righteous, next verse, verse 23, why? Why are none righteous? Why is not one righteous? Because all have sinned, and guess what? All have sinned as a result. They fall short. What are we falling short of? The glory of God. We have not esteemed Him. We have not treasured God. We have not valued Him. We've not been excited about Him. We're not stoked about Him. We've fallen short of this amazing glory. That's the consequence. We've all sinned and we're falling short of the very thing we should treasure and we don't. Consequently, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he'd write a couple chapters later. Look at it, it says, for the wages, for the wages of sin. Now, wages are what? Things you get paid to do, right? So if you work a job, you put in the time, you get wages. We were earning this. What was the wages of death is of sin? It's death. So we've been earning death, but the free gift of God. Notice I want to contrast on the one hand, the wages, the things we are working so hard for, contrasted with God says, I'm just going to give you freely this thing. So the thing we've been working for contrasted with the freeness of what God gives is eternal life in Christ our Lord. Notice how eternal life. Let's contrast the eternal life with death. The death there is contrasted with life just as the wages are contrasted with free. So, the death referred to there is not just physical death. It is an eternal death that we have been working for, but God says, I have a free gift for you. And I mean, in Romans chapter 5, 9, what, what makes us so frightening is look at that. Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Paul writes, since therefore we have now been justified, justified, we've been justified. How have we been justified? Look at the prepositional phrase right there, by His blood. are we justified? By His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. There's the problem the wrath of God. That is the problem we are all faced with. That's the problem of humanity. And how are we going to be saved, as He says there in Romans 5? How are we going to be saved from that wrath? We're going to be justified. But how do we get justified? We're justified by His blood. And that's a way of saying His death. Now, He wrote to the Thessalonians, some similar to this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 9, how you, the Thessalonians, were these Gentiles, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us, there it is again, from the wrath to come. How are we delivered from the wrath to come? Paul says it is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath of, uh, that is to come, Now in John, John writes it this way, and and notice the words, the phraseology may shift, but it's the same point. John says it again, John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has, there's good news right there, he has what? Life, eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but there it is again, the wrath of God remains on him whoever believes, it's the Greek word pisteo, where we get the word trust. This is not belief like, um, I, well, I, we believe Canada is a nation. This is not that kind of belief. This is the belief like, I believe my wife loves me, right? So, if Canada is not a nation, it doesn't change, anything, no, no big deal. If my wife doesn't love me, my life falls apart. It is a belief, not just of, of kind of removed content it is a personal trust. Pisteo is often translated as trust. Whoever trusts, trusts these things. Trust that we are under condemnation. Trust that the wrath of God is coming. Trust that the only way to be delivered and saved is through Christ. So, so these passages, and there's a lot more. These passages are showing the problem that's outside of us that the reformers clearly understood here's the problem with humanity there is objective guilt that we have because of sin and the wrath of God is coming because of it there is real guilt we're really guilty and God's wrath is coming but that's not all that's not that's not the entirety of the bad news it gets worse believe it or not it gets worse aren't you glad you came this morning here it is if this wasn't bad enough, that we are objectively guilty and God's wrath is coming upon us, this is all external. It's also an internal problem. Look at what Ephesians chapter 2 says, and you were dead. You're not sick. You're not dying. You're dead, completely dead. You don't even if you know, sometimes you hear people say, We're like drowning in sin, but God throws us the lifesaver. Can a corpse go? Got it. I got it. Thank you. I needed that. You're dead. You're not even on the surface. You have sunk to the bottom, bloated in your transgressions. Paul says, You are dead. Look at it. In your trespasses and sins. And, and in this instance, we're close on Halloween. This is appropriate. But you're you're like, that's. You're like a zombie because even though you're dead, you're still carrying out desires. You're moving around the desires of the body and the mind. And here it is again. You are by nature children of wrath like the rest of man, everybody. Every one of us is in this predicament, everybody. Everybody. Man, verse 4 makes you, if you're tracking with me, verse 4, you go, oh my gosh, but God being rich in mercy, why is God rich in mercy? Look at it, because of the great love with which He loved us. God is rich in mercy because of His great love. You say, how can God have be wrathful but so loving? If you're a parent, you understand that because you love your child so much, you hate and are wrathful to anything that will hurt your child. And God, because He's rich in love with which He loved us, even though we were, there it is again, we were dead in our trespasses. Oh, there's the doctrine of regeneration. He made us alive with Christ. He doesn't make us alive because we got our self esteem better. He doesn't make us alive because of our good attendance at church. He doesn't make us alive because we're necessarily just good moral people, we're conservative or whatever. He makes us alive. Look at that prepositional phrase with Christ. Now, if you know this passage, I kind of took out the last phrase because I'm trying to save it for the climax, but I, I'm excited about it. It says, By grace you've been saved, he says. So here's, so we, we talked about our objective guilt, God's wrath is upon us because of that, but that's just externally, internally, we're dead. We are dead, and our nature is against God. Look at how Paul would say the same thing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, the natural person, what he's talking about, he's not talking about if you're like a tree hugger, a rock licker, and you like to be, you know, just natural. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the nature of man apart from the spiritual uh, regeneration of Christ, so you're natural in that there's no spirit breathing life within you. The natural person, I want to point this out to you, does not, this is an act of the will, it's volitional. The natural person that doesn't have the Spirit of God does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Look at four, For. Why? For is often a, a conjunction that means because, because they're crazy, they're folly, they're foolishness to him. Oh, but check it out. And he is not able. He does not because he cannot. Because he is dead in his rebellion and sins. He cannot understand them because, there it is, they are spiritually discerned you notice that transaction? They will not. It's an act of the will. I don't, I'm not going to do this because they cannot, because they have nothing in them that gives them life because they're dead in their sins. One last verse, Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Again, Paul saying the same kind of thing but using different language. You need to train yourself to see this. For the mind that is set on the flesh, there it is, is hostile to God. You say, well, then this doesn't apply to me. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not hostile to God. I don't even think about God. Friends, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. The mind that is not empowered and, and the soul that's not brought alive because of God is hostile to God, whether it's, it's aggressively, uh, actively against God or it's just apathetic. It's hostile to God. For it does not, there it is, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Ah, So, our problem from the outside is that there is God's wrath in our guilt. The problem from the inside is our deadness and rebellion against Him. And the Reformers were asking, is there a way out of this mess? Can there way be a way that God is 100% for us forever? And They discovered, yes, there is. It is by His grace alone. In Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, and the Scriptures being the final and ultimate authority for discerning, teaching, and defending these things. It is in Scripture alone. You can see now when they came to this realization that this is what Scripture actually taught. And it had nothing to do with, with showing up and hearing the bell ring and the wafer and the cup and all these things. And and and, and, and even no matter how good you were, you would still have purgatory to look forward to. But, and maybe if people contributed to the building project, you could get out. You could see why they just pulled their hair and went, are you out of your minds? The gospel has been corrupted. It's been lost. And they pleaded to the church to reform. But it wouldn't. And so God does what He will always do. He will destroy the thing that opposes Him so that the gospel can be proclaimed. And from the ashes of the metaphysical destruction of the Catholic Church, the Protestant Reformation was born. So, we see why is the Reformation important? Yes, historically, culturally, politically, it has all these reasons. The most significant is because of the recovery of the gospel. So, how did the Reformation recover the gospel? It, it was codified in the five solos, but we talked about they realized it was a, the justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone, in Scripture alone. The third question is, what then does the Reformation mean for us today? Now, when, we're, when I'm asking this question… I think I'm not asking it, I'm asking it in the sense of what lessons can we learn from what happened? Just as we would study Scripture, we ask those questions, what can we learn? So it's not, it's more in this grand scheme, how can we learn from what God did in history? Here are three takeaways real quickly, I know we're running out of time. Number one, God is sovereign. God is the Lord over the events of history and the affairs of man. So let's argue from the greater to the lesser. Therefore, God is sovereign over the offense and affairs of your life as well. I I wrote, you can rest in that, you you should rejoice in that. You should uh, revel in that. But maybe the first thing I should have put was that you need to recognize that that God is sovereign. First, first rule of life to get life to understand it, there is a God, it's not you, right? There's a God, and I recognize His sovereignty, and as a result, man, we can rest in that. The, the, the calamities and tragedies and craziness of our world, we can rest, because God is sovereign. We can rejoice in that, and we can revel in that, friends. Friends. That's a sermon right there. i got to move on. Second thing. What does the Reformation mean for us? God is good. God will do whatever necessary. Um, God will do whatever is necessary so that humanity can hear the gospel. Here's my note. Including cast off over a thousand years of history and begin all over again. God God, God does not care about our institutions and our plans and our history and our culture. I'm just going to be really honest. He doesn't, when they are in in contradiction and opposition to His plan to redeem us. And if God will cast down almost 1,500 years of the church and and that history, therefore, He'll do anything in your life to get you to understand and and cherish the gospel. And and that can be good. He He can have you in a godly family where you're hearing the gospel as a young child growing up, surrounded by people who love you, That can be hard where he takes everything away from you, the financial security you depend on, your popularity, your good looks, your health. He'll strip it all away so you realize you are nothing and are absolutely dependent on a gracious and good God, even if you don't define good, even if he doesn't define good the way you'd like him to define good. So I visited a friend a couple weeks ago in the hospital. He's a couple years older than me, and he and his wife they are, for, for me, a living example of Job. Their health is shot financially, completely wrecked. Their child is living in open rebellion. I visited him because he had kind of a, a, kind of a heart attack. I'm not quite sure, but it was something tragic, and he was in the hospital. And so he sent a text message, and I wrote to him. I said, bro, it was great to see you a couple of weeks ago. May the Lord sustain you as you experience his goodness to you in a way that you would not have anticipated. And some people would say, oh, that's so harsh he's suffering from a heart attack, he's financially broke, his child's in rebellion, they are both at, the, at wit's end, and you're saying this is God's goodness? This is what my friend says. That was a blessing, a long road ahead, but Jesus has helped me see eternity in perspective, and is taking my grip away from the things of this world, so I can grab onto the things of the next, and I would never have seen it any other way. God is good, even if His definition of good is different from what you think is good. You can trust Him. You can trust Him. You can believe the Reformers who loved God's work in history in the church when they saw it all coming apart and wars and all this. They could say, but God is good, and He'll bring beauty from the ashes. And 500 years later, Here we are, and the Protestant church is turning the world upside down in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. It's crazy what's happening out there because of the gospel, because of the modern missions movement, because of the Reformation, because, because, because of the wonderful things He does. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for salvaging that at the last moment. (laughs) Third and finally, God is the gospel. God is the supreme treasure, our only true hope, and the ultimate goal of reality. God is the gospel. If we get excited about the Reformation or theological issues or church stuff and forget the whole point of the gospel was to bring fallen humanity back to God so we could cherish Him and savor Him, we've misunderstood it all. God is the final and ultimate gift of the gospel. Therefore, live for what matters, that's what James has been telling us, repent of low living. You know what low living is? Living like this is the only thing that matters, this world is the only thing that matters, and set your sights on things high above. Worship Him. So, He's sovereign. You can revel, rejoice, and, and you can rest in Him. He's good. You can trust Him. He is the gospel, so worship Him. That's why the Reformation matters to us 500 years later. That's why it's important. That's what it means. Let's pray. Lord, as we have just talked about the Reformation, but it is not the history or the culture of it that excites us, it's because we see your sovereignty and goodness redeeming humanity, bringing forth the gospel. Father, forgive us for not recognizing your sovereignty in our life, for not calling good what you call good, and for not worshiping you. Lord, as James has been so beautifully preparing for us, and as I've heard week after week, this life is fickle and frail and disappears in a moment. Would you be so kind to help us be a congregation That is gripped by the realities of what our brothers and sisters in Christ gave their lives for so that we could be sitting here worshiping together today, rejoicing in the message of the gospel. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.